G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing. We are really grateful for you, for you taking the time to uh, download and listen to this podcast. And we don't ask for much in return. They would really be grateful if you could pop to iTunes and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be uh, would be great, uh, like Will from Sandwich did last, last March. So thanks for that, Will. Um, it certainly helps us with our iTunes metrics and make it easier for others to access this information. So today we're going to talk to Elsa Beltran, one of our fabulous lecturers here in neurology and neurosurgery, who in uh, my fact-checking mission I believe is interested in post-traumatic epilepsy, which is good. Um, She's also a very keen scuba diver, um, though sadly not our topic of conversation today, um, as today we're going to talk about traumatic brain injury. So thank you, Elsa, for for giving us your time today. You are more than welcome. So obviously I know from from working with you um, that you're very interested in in all sorts of uh, neurology and neurological presentations of of, of disease, but uh, but you always have a a, a knowledge of when we have a patient that might have traumatic brain injury. So um, so I know we're in safe hands today. So maybe I could ask that your um, maybe your initial uh, approach if uh, if a patient came to you that you suspect might have um, traumatic brain injury or or head injury. Yeah. Like any patient that potentially has been hit by something. Yeah. So, yes, the first the first that we potentially has or, or need to consider is that has that patient had a traumatic brain injury or has been involved just in a trauma uh, that may have involved the head, but the brain has never lost the function at any point. So those patients are not considered to have a traumatic brain injury and sometimes can look quite dramatic like we have had dogs that come to us with a broken frontal sinus and they come up they come into the uh, hospital up and walking like nothing they they don't show any brain dysfunction but when you look at the dog uh, you probably faint if uh, if you're not used to see this type of injury so the first question is try to retrospectively taking the history if that dog at any point has shown any signs of traumatic brain injury and and uh, dogs that are or cats that are hit by a by a car hit by a by a uh, any type of of um uh, a vehicle or, or or had been involved in any type of trauma the question that has they lost uh, their consciousness at any time have they had potentially even a seizure at the time of the of the injury and uh, have they have they as i said lost the consciousness and never recover it or lost the consciousness then they can recover it but the mental status uh, uh, is not bright alert and responsive so all of that could be signs that that dog has been uh, suffering or is su- currently suffering from a traumatic brain injury and do you, and do you find Elsa that you, you it's easy to get that information from clients or there's certain patients that you think that might be we get that information better yeah it's difficult because uh which in the end is 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 the the best that can happen is that you doubt if that dog has had a traumatic brain injury because if he comes Mm -hmm. to you and is bright alert and responsive then even if he has had a traumatic brain injury the prognosis is very likely to be very good obviously we can talk later about the post-traumatic epilepsy but um if they come to us and and the dog is is obtended or the dog is unconscious then is is not relevant too much to say what happened at the time because at the moment that we received the patient that that patient somehow had uh the brain is not functioning properly okay and and do you when you're examining this patient so say if the patient was not conscious at the time when it was presented to you um is there anything initially you do to i don't know um stop 
any further potential damage or do you give some oxygen? Yeah, it's, it's very important and this is, uh, we're lucky here at the RBC because we have a multidisciplinary hospital no? and we combine different disciplines but it's very important that when we receive a dog with a, with a blunt trauma or a trauma in general that we just don't focus in the brain because dogs can die for cardiovascular problems, dogs can, can die for being hypovolemic and uh, we should focus on animal systemic and we should focus how that dog is breathing, uh, there is any potentially rupture of the bladder, there is a potential any abdomen, uh, sorry, any, any hemorrhage in the abdomen. So all of that is things that can really uh, affect the prognosis. So it's very important that if you receive an unconscious uh, patient, that could be a primary problem in the brain, but that could be because there is lack of oxygen, because that dog has had a traumatic brain injury, or even not or had a trauma without affecting the brain and he had a cardiac arrest and all those arrive unconscious and your primary problem may not be in the brain and, and that's very important that when they are involved in this type of traumas a very thorough systemic assessment has to be done. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And um, and I suppose, do you, do you try and do a neurological exam quite quickly or where, where does that as I, sit in yeah, as, if, as once you've obviously worked out the the other organs are, are okay or cardiovascular yeah, and respiratory yeah, wise you're yeah. okay if the if the dog is unconscious there is not too much that we can do yeah. apart from what is uh, assessing the brainstem reflexes and they are uh, that's very important as well about prognosis because if you have a dog that is unconscious and there are quite a basic brainstem reflexes that any of us can do uh, like the most reliable one when we have a traumatic brain injury they are uh, mainly the pupillary light reflex and everybody should have a light a potential light uh, uh, that you can assess and if those pupils respond that's a that's good that if uh, they are fixed and dilated, that is probably the worst prognosis that you can have. And uh, the other thing that other reflex that is easy to assess is what is called the vestibulocular reflex. So we move the head and then uh, we should see the eyes moving at the same time. And that uh, as well tell us a very uh, important part of the brainstem if it's working or it's not working. And then um, the palpebral reflex, for example, or the corneal reflex. But the two most important reflexes that you can do are the pupillary light reflex, and everybody knows how to do those, and the brainstem reflex, the, sorry, the vestibulocular reflex. And if all those two are working, that's better than if you have a fixated pupil and absent vestibulocular reflex. And if you have that potentially you can even suggest that that patient has his brainstem dead and that may or may not recover. And, and it's very important in, in dogs with traumatic brain injury that you do systemic assessment. So just don't do that, then treat and forget to go back in six hours. Those animals every 10, every 20 minutes, uh, and it sh constantly should be someone there as well because those animals as well can have seizures at any time and you should be prepared in advance, so it's very easy to make the calculation of which type of treatment, and as I say, we can talk about later, but when they come, the dog comes in, you know the weight, just prepare some anti-epileptics, have them with you, because the dog at any time, if he has had a traumatic brain injury, can have a seizure, and the last thing you want in a brain that is already suffering is that you put on top an, a, 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 an epileptic event to that little brain yeah absolutely and and are there other injuries that you are concerned about neurologically neurologically speaking or things that you think might not catch people out but that you should be aware of with a with any yeah, sort of no, injury yeah definitely because as i said sometimes it's difficult to the, the owner come to you is very stressed it doesn't remember really what happened you don't know how that 
vehicle or that car or even that train sometimes hit the patient and it could be that it, the, the trauma is just focused to the head but imagine that patient has a trauma to the head has a trauma to the cervical spine has a trauma to the thoracolumbar and sometimes they come to us obtunded and you say oh I need to see if he's moving the legs and then you try to stand up the dog which potentially could have a thoracolumbar subluxation and you are damaging further that spine because it's unstable so it's very important that if there is any doubt or you cannot get from the history if that patient has had just a, a traumatic brain injury or it has potentially could have a multifocal trauma that at least surveyed x-rays to 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 see that there is not any other obvious um trauma to the vertebral column because that can really affect the prognosis as well and if you have a dog with a cervical um, instability because of a trauma that involved the head and the neck and you start moving that neck moving the head to see for example oh, I need to assess the vestibulocular reflex as they told me and you start moving the head up and down uh, you can really damage the cervical spine and to the point that your phrenic nerve may be affected to the point that you cause a respiratory arrest to that dog. Yeah. So it's very important that uh, we just don't focus in the brain. We make sure that the rest of the, the same that the chest and the abdomen, the the vertebral column is, is doesn't have any further injuries. Okay, so, so I think because we always like as veterinary to, to not almost make snap decisions, but also to to you know guide our clients like with an effective prognosis. But I think these are you know one of the one of the many things that you can't say when a, when an animal comes in, this is going to do all right or, or not. You can you can definitely say based on certain information we have, like it doesn't you know it might not look good, but but even the ones that we think that terrible can you know give a tincture of time and and uh, and support they can go you know can walk out the, the, the hospital so so this sort of idea that that you can identify at a point in time whether an animal's going to live or die is like we're, we're not really there yet yeah and i think it's is when they arrive in a in a such a critical state uh, the good thing and that may sound a little bit weird but the, the good thing is that at least dogs they don't use their forebrain as much so as far as they are able to back and walk and walk the tail and recognize the owner they can do a excellent quality of life so they don't have to play piano they don't have to talk so the brain is amazingly how much it can recover from a extremely severe traumatic brain injury but it's true that uh, when they come to us if they are unconscious the big question that the owner may ask you oh, is ever going to recover and it's very difficult to answer that question on admission so it's very important that there is a good conversation with the owner and the first 48 hours are very critical because um, there is different it's very important the clinical assessment and from a neurology point of view there is a modified glaucoma score that we can use and, and it's easy when you put your hands on on that to, to assess um, there are different big three things that we have to assess when do when we do the modified glaucoma score and one is the mental status and it's very easy to say okay is my dog unconscious or is my dog obtended or is my dog bright alert and response and based on this characterization of the mental status you give a, a number from one to six and then the same when we do uh, the brainstem reflexes no so there are the two that we already mentioned the pupillary reflex vestibulocular reflex which are the most important and then if they have them they get a high number if they don't have them they get a, a low number and then the last uh, thing that we see is how much they can 
consciously move the legs, no? How is the motor activity? But it's very important, as we said before, if there is any doubt that that dog could have a, a, a trauma to the spine, we don't move those patients. So it's very easy. On lateral recumbency, they do voluntary movements. So if you already see that, that already gives you a number. And um, the first 48 hours are critical because if when they arrive, that modified glaucoma score goes higher and higher and higher, it's very likely that dog is going to make it. If when they arrive, just talking for an example, if they arrive with a modified glaucoma score of 13, with, with the maximum is 18, 18 is the best prognosis, is nearly, nearly a normal dog, and uh, they come with 12, 13 is moderate, it's, it's, and then in six hours you have eight, in eight hours you have six, there's something that is not working there. There's something that you may need to be more aggressively treating that patient because it's likely it's not going to make it, if that makes sense. So it's very important the first 48 hours because if they arrive with a modified glaucoma score of 8, 10, and in 3, 4 hours that increase, 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 is because um, that brain is responding to the medication or is responding to the just the, 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 the palliative treatment that we're oh, sorry, the, the, the supportive medication that we're giving to. So when you say we need to like aggressively support the, these patients, so what, 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 do you, what do you mean by that? So what are yeah, your focus? Yeah, there are, as I said, when we arrive, the most important thing is that we assess the patient from a cardiovascular point of view, we make sure that there is not in a hypovolemic shock, we make sure that all of that should be with fluids and all of that has to be restored. And then is the big question mark about which type of osmotic treatment we give and there is there is not a right or wrong decision um, i like more the manitol but there are people that are more, more the hypertonic so as far as we know how to use that medication and we make sure that the dog is not dehydrating we make sure that the dog is uh, has a normal volume of blood and and that uh, systemically you is not gonna damage that you give the osmotics then uh, that will be kind of my first approach so first make sure that the dog is uh, or at least try to get a normal molemic dog make sure that the dog is systemically stable have a good heart rate blood pressure and oxygen that is the three big things that we have to make sure the dog is stable and if that is stable and the dog gets better we can wait and see if there is not any contraindication potentially we can go to the next step and give some money to if we think uh, the dog either neurologically is very uptended, but if the dog is bright and unresponsive and uh, you have recovered the dog from the shock, you may not even need to give the manitol, but if you think that um, that dog from a mental, sorry, from the mental status is uptended and potentially could have um, severe trauma to the brain, then we can give some manitol and wait and see how it responds. During that time, and we give aggressively, as we said, we treat the dog, we give the manitol, we make sure and we don't forget about the analgesia because those dogs can be painful and uh, there is muscle pain. Of your, of the CNS doesn't have receptor for pain and a, a, a pure CNS uh, um, uh, condition could not cause pain, but you have the meninges, you have the skull, you have the muscles, you have the skin, and all of that are painful. So we need to make sure that we control the pain. And then... Uh, monitor and it's very important the clinical assessment and see how it does and if in in uh, the dog all this medication or all this supportive treatment that you're giving is not making any difference or on the other hand it gets worse we need to get to the point that we need to 
know what's going on to the brain and those are the patients that potentially could be candidate for doing further diagnostic tests to assess that brain and we go to the point of consider imaging and then it's a big debate obviously we are from the basics of doing survey x-rays but we know the x-rays the skulls the skull is very difficult to see it on x-rays because of the irregularity and it's not such a uh, it's not the greatest one, but it's a good one to start with. And then there's the big controversy, CT versus MRI. And unfortunately, there is not a right or wrong decision because the idea is to have both. But it's kind of the very uh, unrealistic sometimes scenario. So the CT is very good for bones and the CT is very good as well to see hemorrhage. But the CT is not very good for the brainstem and the brainstem uh, is known in dogs and, and in humans is the greatest or what can tell us for a long-term prognosis so if the dog has a bilateral brainstem lesion it can recover to the point that it can be uh, it will not die but it may not have a good long-term outcome because he may not be able to walk again or he may not be able to be consciously perceiving what's uh, um, or being aware of the um, they can have permanent circling for example or uh, things that potentially can affect the quality of life but what in those patients, why we decide to consider imaging, why we don't wait and see, because some patients may have a depressed fracture that we need to rush into theater. Some patients may have a, a severe hemorrhage that is compressing the brain, and sometimes you need to go there and then compress. But those patients, they are not going to improve the first 24 hours. So you don't rush into imaging. Imaging is not going to treat the dog. Imaging is going to help you if you're first approach is not working see so you there's so many so many great things is in there. the um amazing well the the idea though about imaging that i'd, I'd just like to, to ask especially almost for, my, for myself would be so if you're not getting better or plateauing so you say if your last cocoma scale a score is is x and it hasn't improved is is that the time when you think about imaging and would that be 48 hours or 24 hours or 72 hours or I think do, we, do we know depends what we consider plateau because if we have an unconscious dog for six hours and we are not having him back i would consider imaging at that point because it may be that is from there to death probably there's not too long and if there is anything that we can do we may have to do it it may be that we do it we spend the money on an mri we spend the money on a ct and we still nothing that we can do from a surgical point of view and we just need to continue with the supportive uh, treatment and we need to see how much of that brain that has received the contusion because at the moment there's not too much that we can give for contusive brain apart from maybe there's a little bit of edema treat edema but that's it there is nothing proven at the moment that we can save those secondary injuries that happen to the brain so the if the dog is just obtained but is plateau then it's not a risk to wait 24 hours or 48 hours but uh, as i said if it's a dog that is unconscious i will not wait 48 hours because it may the damage may be already permanent when we potentially could do something and if we haven't res or we haven't seen an improvement since admission for six eight hours there's something else that it may or may not help uh which may or may not have the answer doing a, an imaging. And it's very important because sometimes the owners really expect if they spend the money doing an MRI, the dog is going to be better. And that's not the answer. The answer is when we do the MRI, we may find something that 
we have to treat in a different way that we are doing at the moment. And those are reserved for patients that they don't improve. But it's dramatic sometimes how dogs come in uh, unconscious. They come in and, uh, and in six hours they may be even up already. So that's that's why it's so important in traumatic brain injuries that very close monitoring is because they can go up and downhill in no time. And, and if we are not there to, to see how we can change, because again, a seizure can be missed and they can seizure. And if a dog starts seizuring um, after a traumatic brain injury in three, four hours, that can happen. I mean, if we are not able to stop that, you get a secondary damage to the brain that it may take longer to recover to that dog or you make we may cause something else to that brain that cause permanent damage. Um, awesome. So, so just to get backtrack just a, a little bit, uh, and, and not not really a fan of talking about like doses per, per se, but I know for for mannitol, like it's normally like a quarter of a, a, a gram to like two grams per mm-hmm. kilo is, is 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 what's written, and and uh, to give over a certain period of time, mm-hmm. and and I'm pretty sure like I was trained here, so it's twenty minutes seems to be the time, mm-hmm. or, or maybe maybe less than than that. But normally we're, we're kind of conservative, going more of the low end of that mm-hmm. and to maybe think about repeating it mm-hmm. should need be. I think it's only ophthalmologists that give two, two grams per kilo because yeah. I, I think they only care about the eyes. But uh, but it, 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 it's a very potent um, medication, isn't it? So I suppose we need to think well, osmotic diuretics. So. That's it. And you don't want to dehydrate a patient because that's that's very important because those dogs come in hypovolemic shock. Those dogs come in, they are not dynamically stable or systemically stable so it's very important that and is probably we need more studies to prove this but above 0.5 grams per kick is not going to make a big difference or, and the good thing is that we avoid the side effects and we can repeat it more often because we have a still a very active damage to the brain so if we give the money to and I personally don't give more than 0.5 grams per kick, and then you should just start seeing an effect in 20 minutes, and uh, you can wait an hour and two hours, and if that time you haven't noticed any different, potentially after the first dosage you can repeat in three to four hours, and then we can do that over 24 hours up to two grams. I would not give more than that because potentially that dog may need something else that is not manitol, and there is other damage that we are not treating and, and you will have all the side effects that you, then you will have to deal with mm. um see i mean the the, the the best thing that i've i've read about that make made more sense to me about fluid therapy with these uh, patients is obviously if there's no traumatic injury then give them whatever you want you know more, normal crystalloids are, are fine but if there if there is if they're uvolemic then give mannitol and if they're hypovolemic give them hypotonic saline because mm-hmm kind of makes a little bit of sense but but this is extrapolated from yeah. people really and 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 again there's no evidence in 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 you know, traumatic brain injury in people about what fluid to give but it, but that sort of makes sense but if you only have mannitol give mannitol if you only Definitely. have hypotonic saline give, yeah but give make that, sure that right? they are they are they are not dehydrated when you do that because yeah. as i said then you will need to deal with the secondary damage that you may cause yeah absolutely um and uh so, so with, with regards to that uh, um, secondary damage, like do, do do you think you should give fluids afterwards, or because I suppose that in in general, um, what we're trying to do with give mannitol is like dehydrate the the brain. So we might need some cardiovascular Definitely, support, yeah. but not really. We don't want to flood them with yeah. fluids, do yeah. we? So, 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 so sometimes it's different. It's difficult to find the balance, but yeah. yeah, you need to. And then again, don't give more mannitol if you already see a good improvement and that patient is. Is improving there's no point to keep giving it because just 
keep it just in case there is a deterioration and you have to give it. And, and the other thing else we, we we spoke about like when to like when to give um, mannitol is in the mentation. Do, do you think about like blood pressure and heart rate in the Cushing's type of reflexes? Yeah, there's something that that you have to monitor all the time yeah. because again, as I said, those animals, uh, if they have a severe traumatic brain injury, they are going to have increasing intracranial pressure, and uh, and that uh, potentially even a hemorrhage can can get larger, and that will may manifest with, with changes in your blood pressure, may manifest on changes in your heart rate, that uh, it gives you a cushion reflex, which could be an increase in intracranial pressure, or it could be even a contusion to that brainstem, and then is, is, is where the point, like, oh, is something else I should be doing, or this dog has such a severe contusion that that brainstem is just not functioning and it will not, never recover, and this is what we get those comatose um, uh, status of brainstem that, that potentially could, could happen, and this is where uh, sometimes even as a pronostic factor when you cannot recover the dog shall we consider doing imaging and, and looking at the brainstem which we know clinically is not working so is it, we know that brainstem is not working but it's not working because it could be some hemorrhagic injury and that potentially can resolve or it's not working because there is such a severe Contusion, or it is such a secondary damage to that brainstem, and uh, it's difficult as well because MRI is very nice as a picture, but MRI is very bad giving us final names, so we don't know if that diffuse axonal injury is something that we can really ca characterize on MRI. So we cannot forget how important is the clinical assessment, and MRI, as I said, it should be preserved for animals that they don't get better on the first. 24 hours that we that we try to to achieve and then other thing that we haven't talked is is and it's a question mark as well a lot what do we do with an or prophylactic treatment for for seizures and we know that any damage to the forebrain can cause seizures at any point and and it's controversial because um, even in human, I went to a, a, a conference of a traumatic brain injury and you could see half of the audience was um, in favor of giving. Uh, particular levetiracetam, half of the audience was totally against it. And I was just in the middle and said, well, it's not such a big difference with us, no, that we don't really still know what, what to give. And on those cases, there are things that we need to consider. What is the side effects of giving that medication? Because if there are several side effects and we don't know the benefits, then you should be careful using it. And obviously the cost, because it's very extremely expensive and we don't really know if it's making any difference. We should be careful using it. So... Yeah, it's, it's still controversial, but if the dog definitely, potentially, or the cat could have a seizure at any time, that should be treated. And so would you treat that with a with a with like a benzodiazepine initially? Yeah, definitely the, the, the diazepam will be my first my first choice. And then it's also a question mark, what do we do? Do we carry on with uh, uh, like phenobarbiton or, or levetiracetam? Obviously, levetiracetam, we know is of license. We need to, to give it at that point, but... I would avoid in unless the dog is extremely or is in a in a status epilepticus. I would avoid loading those dogs on phenobarbiton. And again, there may be different opinions. There are different neurologists that may think different. But because what when you load a dog, even a normal dog, which is mentally or, or normal mental status, you load them on pheno, they can be extremely uptended. And then you get to the point like you need to monitor that dog because you don't know the first 24, 48 hours are critical. And if you load it, if you decided, okay, my dog had two seizures, I'm going to load it on pheno, and you give 
18 milligrams per kick over 24 hours that is going to create such a severe sedation to that dog that clinically is impossible for you to differentiate if that is because your full brain uh, potentially damage to the brain is getting worse because of your traumatic brain injury or that is the secondary uh, side effects of the loading of the pheno. So if possible, I would avoid it. And and then we can give the levetiracetam, which potentially can have some neuroprotectants. And this is why the people with uh, are a favor of giving it as a, a prophylactic treatment, because as I said, potentially, and there has been uh, proof in rats, but not in, in, in humans, not in, in dogs, that potentially could have some neuroprotectants. And that um, the good thing of the levetiracetam has minimal side effects regarding the sedation. It can be given IV, and in very half an hour you have already good levels in bloods. And uh, and um, with a prophylactic one, we can give it for two three weeks, and then consider to stop it after the traumatic brain injury. But the owner should be aware that that patient, that cat, that dog that had had a traumatic brain injury, can have a seizure at any point on his life, and this is should be monitored very carefully because, uh, as I said, uh, up to, we just did a study on, on 50 dogs with traumatic brain injury and up to 10% of those patients can have a seizure at any point in his life. That's quite, that's quite significant, isn't it? Yeah. With the phenobarbitone, I can absolutely understand that you're going to uh, um, uh, decrease your ability to assess that mm -hmm. neurological state of the patient. Is, is When you went to that conference, is there any people wanting to use that because I'm would it have some neuroprotective effects as as well as levetiracetam? Would it decrease the metabolic requirement of the of the brain, or or, or not at all? They are, you mean in the human for the phenom? Yeah, um, yeah. They don't really use phenom okay. much as we do. <laughs> no, Fair no, enough. they don't. So I, I think phenobarbitone is a very good option, and and to start as a normal one, and sometimes you can even do the combination. So okay, I start phenobarbitone as normal dose because I don't want to cause a massive sedation, and then because levetiracetam is more expensive, I'm gonna use levetiracetam just for a week, two weeks until I get uh, potentially proper levels of pheno, and I would. Uh, I would avoid loading that dog unless, as I said, the dog, the seizures, you cannot control them. And then obviously you have to control them and then you use the phenobarbitone. But. And especially when we're talking about loading, we're giving doses of intravenous phenobarbitone up to a level of somewhere around 18 mg per 1824, yeah. So, so, uh, so very different than giving oral phenobarbitone, which takes... 10 days, two weeks to... Well, no, and yeah, that's it. Or, or the problem is that on those dogs, and it's another thing, I would not give anything perose unless, obviously, the first 24 hours, even if they come up tandy, because you don't know how they're going to progress and, and if... if uh, uh, the medication orally may not act as good as the one. No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and the, the the pharmacokinetics of levetiracetam. So even the oral formulation of that, though you can you can use that uh, rectally, can't you? Because I know the IV well, formulation. Well, you could. You, is no, you can use it rectally, definitely. Expensive. And and uh, there is the syrup uh, yeah. that you can use it rectally. And uh, as I said, there are many studies that prove it, uh, but. Rather than not giving it, uh, using rectally potentially could could be absorbed as well. See the uh, the always the, the the big question on on not the big question I, I doubt was that that big but everyone loves to give steroids right for for most things you know for for uh, in 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 general I think that's been the mainstay probably for about fifty years of uh, of veterinary practice for a whole host of things and uh, there's uh, definitely 
benefits to it in in uh, in some aspects but um do you think we've we've uh, decided categorically that in any sort of head injury or traumatic brain injury that steroids is a bad thing categorically it's a bit yeah. more, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, i would say don't give steroids don't give steroids unless there is something that is proven will benefit from the steroids but nowadays if you have a dog that uh, present with head trauma doesn't have any other medical condition doesn't have uh, any or the dog is not on steroids previously for any other reason I would avoid giving steroids because there is no proven at all that in, in trauma to the CNS uh, we're talking about spinal trauma we're talking about brain trauma uh, any trauma to the CNS uh, is not proven that works and is, is shown that it has side effects from a gastric point of view from uh, you immunosuppress that dog which is already coping just with and uh, and uh, why we want to give something that is not making any benefits and is not proven that is making any benefits and is proven that is has side effects and and can 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 have some gastric problems and is the last thing you want is an ulcer in that dog for example yeah i think i remember when i first uh, started work or i was a student and uh, we had even like special bottles of stories yeah, that we give yeah. to, to too, these sort too. of patients it's, uh, but it's so you know, hopefully that's changed and now yeah. nowadays is 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 well known that in in at least in you don't give this 30 milligrams per kick of 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 uh prednisolone which uh i'm very young yet but you st- it was still a, when I finished one of the things that yeah just give high dosage of steroids that yeah. will make it and and that's wrong we should we should avoid it giving it but as I said you cannot say categorically because you may have the patient which for any condition like sometimes we have traumatic brain injury because the dog uh, was already not getting well and he had an MUA just walked the road and and so be careful because sometimes it could be okay this dog had a traumatic brain injury out of the blue or this dog was already showing some signs before and it was not seen properly and then the car came so this is why it's so important the history because as I said sometimes we have dogs that say no now that you say the last two days has been quieter it's not so reactive to the environment I just took it out without the lead and then the van came well that's different so we need to be careful with that because those are the patients that potentially we need to investigate something more than the typical head trauma that comes to to the practice and and do you have any experience with using like proton pump inhibitors because i or was that something that's uh, very no i don't have it and currently uh, as far as i'm aware there's nothing that's proven is in any benefit and again if there is no side effects, we could potentially consider it in in our patients, uh, but I'm not sure about the cost of that. If it's, uh, mm. but I personally don't have any experience. I suppose I always wonder whether we're gonna, you know, the, the number of patients that need to see a different, say, even when steroids in people is over ten thousand. So I'm not sure we're gonna get the numbers I to necessarily high. <laughs> necessarily show uh, a significant difference. And I suppose with that is there's the the, the, um, the the studies we're talking about with like the, the crash studies looking at tranexamic acid. Um, now in, in trauma, but the, the first crash star was to use steroids in head trauma. But now they're thinking about tranexamic acid or not thinking about that. Actually, the crash three trial is tranexamic acid in the head trauma. And, and, and I suppose that might be an interesting thing uh, if it shows a, a, a benefit in people. Um, but again, I don't, I don't know of anybody that's uh, that's using it in in uh, in dogs or cats. Well, maybe one of my colleagues, but uh, but uh, he he loves the drug. So um, 
So it's really to to recap, if if I may, I, I think that like obviously it's very important to have a look at uh, you know assess the them neurologically, obviously assess the the patients in general, the major body systems, the heart, brains, lungs, um, and 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 you know focus on on what you need to do initially to stabilise the patient. As far as a neurological assessment, obviously brainstem reflexes are good, and maybe that's part of the modified Glasgow Coma Scale score, um, which which is good as a more of an objective way to say this is where we're at. Yeah, at currently is the only the objective way that we yeah. have to to assess, and and we know it's not the ideal one, and we know now and uh, uh, that that we should combine with uh, systemic assessment and potentially dogs that they may not get better as a long term. You may combine with some imaging uh, pronostic factors. Factors, but uh, nowadays, as the first 48 hours, is a very easy uh, clinical test to do and is it can be quite objective and it's a way that at least you force to have an objective way to monitor a patient that is with you and not like, and okay, I do this this way, My per- the person who's taking over, it may do it different way, so at least you know like, okay, I need to assess these two reflexes, I need to assess this, and then uh, at least this, as I said, the objective way to keep monitoring that patient and that is very essential for the first two days and as far as fluids go so we, we think um obviously if there's no no traumatic brain injury then doesn't really matter but uh, but if there is maybe mannitol or hypertonic saline we, we there's no evidence combined with the that. fluid yeah yeah and then um uh, as far as general things a bit of oxygen probably doesn't Definitely. hurt and then um uh, always, I think we didn't mention about you know keeping the head elevated if they if they yeah. can't look yeah. after that yeah. so at least thirty degrees and yeah. no jugular. Sticks. No, definitely not take because those patients, unless it's otherwise proven, you should assume that they have increased intracranial pressure and and any patient that have increased intracranial pressure, you should raise the head about thirty degrees. You should make sure that no one take blood from the jugular because though this brain pressure may be just coping with it and any small changes to that intracranial pressure really can kill the patient and and uh, you put extra pressure just oh i'm just gonna quickly take blood from the jugular just look at the dog may be dead yeah so this is very important too unless as i said if the dog is obtended and and uh, that could be a sign of increasing intracranial pressure if the dog is brighter and responsive it's very unlikely you will have raised intracranial pressure or to the point that just taking breath from the ulcer would tip that dog to the edge but if the dog is extremely obtended be very careful and obviously analgesia is important just as it is in every traumatic Definitely. patient so we need to uh, need to address sometimes that sometimes we forget about that but it's yeah. very important because you may not be able to control that dog systemically if it's extremely painful um, so I, I, I think uh, we might wrap it up there. Uh, so many thanks for your time today, Elsa. You're welcome. Um, and uh, and thank you for, for listening. Um, so don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your generic fruit, fruit-based device. Um, and then you won't even have to worry about uh, missing a podcast. So if you uh, leave a review on iTunes, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends. So we'll place the show notes on the RVC pages and uh, a, a link to PubMed for, for Elsa's paper and a couple of other papers about uh, traumatic brain injury. Um, if you want to have a look for the show notes, just type in um, RVC Clinical Podcast, your search engine should be the top of the trees. Any comments and suggestions of the podcast would be warmly grateful. So uh, you can either email me at dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Till next time, bye-bye. Bye.